Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Our God and Father, our supreme commander, Lord of all, I pray that you would come and exalt yourself in our eyes now. Open up our eyes that we might see you and open up our ears that we might hear you and open up our hearts that we might receive you. Help us to see you for who you are and to rest in who you are and to be clothed with who you are that we may be able to stand in the evil day against the schemes of the devil. Father, we are your people and we are all weakness, but you are our God and you are all strength. And so I pray now that you would come and clothe us with your strength, that we might rise up and be mighty men and mighty women and mighty children of God. For the glory of your name and the good of your church and the joy of our own souls, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began a series of messages on Ephesians six ten through 20. And the main thrust of my sermon last week was to argue for the fact that to be a Christian is to be a warrior, and to live the Christian life is to live a life of war. We may be good warriors, we may be not so good warriors, but anyone who is in Christ and truly resting in Him is a warrior in the army of God. And this war is serious. The war is mainly spiritual, though sometimes, as we saw last week, through persecution especially, uh, the war sometimes actually does turn physical. And even right this moment, I'm sure that somewhere in the world, someone in Christ is engaged in a physical battle. Not that we have taken up arms against our enemies, but they have taken up arms against us. So mainly this is a spiritual war, but sometimes it does turn physical. And it is as real as any war that's ever been fought in the history of the world. It is more fierce than any war that's ever been fought in the history of the world. In fact, every war that has been fought in the history of the world really has this spiritual war behind it and above it and through it and in it. This is the main war of life, and every Christian is a warrior in it. So when the New Testament employs the language of war to describe the Christian life, it does sometimes have metaphorical elements to it, I will grant you that, but the war to which it points is as real as real gets. It is life and death serious. It is heaven and hell serious. I think in a 
culture like ours, it's easy to be lulled to sleep, isn't it? We don't live like some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world in a culture where we are physically and constantly faced with opposition. And so it's easy for us to settle into our lives and be lulled to sleep and forget about the reality and the intensity and the difficulty of the war that's raging all around us. And so, beloved, we have to do whatever we have to do to stay awake to this reality. Because as I said, this is not a joke. This is not a game that we're playing. These are not just religious things that we talk about at church but have nothing to do with real life. This is reality. This is war. This is life and death serious. This is heaven and hell serious. And may the Lord help us stay awake to it. Now, as you know, in this war, and as we just sang about, God Almighty is our supreme commander. And Satan is the leader of the opposition forces. Comparing Satan to us as people, he is immensely strong. He's much stronger than we think. And if we are to face him directly, we're history. We are no match for him. And he is scheming against us every moment of every day for our harm. Jesus Christ said to some religious leaders in John eight forty four, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Now, that's not too seeker friendly, is it? But that's the truth, and Jesus told the truth. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then again, Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, which is most likely a reference to the devil. Finally, 1 Peter says this of the devil in chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, beloved, that is all to say that Satan is a fierce foe. He is not in any way, shape, or form a benevolent being, and he does not simply want to irritate us. I hope you hear that. The devil is out to steal from you. He's out to kill you. He is out to destroy you. The devil is out to devour you. And the only reason that he is not able to accomplish his will is because of the grace and the power of our God and Father who is staying His hand. But please don't let this idea pass you. Your enemy is greater than you probably think he is. And anyone who knows anything about competition or war knows the biggest mistake you can ever make is underestimating your enemy. And I'm telling you, you better not underestimate him because he's very, very strong. Lord willing, next week we're going to talk more about our enemy because of what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. And so we'll deal with that more then. But for today, the reason I wanted to put this reality on the table was to simply say this, that given what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, it's obvious that the will of the Lord is to outfit us for war and cause us to stand against this foe. It is the will of the Lord to display His power through our weakness. As I was praying about the sermon this morning, a, a picture struck me. It's like we're a bunch of little tiny dwarfs And we're fighting against these 25-foot-tall, massively powerful beings, and it's just a joke. I mean, can you imagine a bunch of two-foot people coming against a bunch of 25-foot people and thinking that we're going to win? 
But that's the situation we're in. And the Lord has said, I'm going to make you win. In the flesh, you're a dwarf, but in me, you're strong. So rise up against these enemies that seem so much greater than you and fight for the glory of Christ. This is why Paul uses the word stand four times in the first four verses of this passage. Let's read it again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? To withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. If you don't see that the point here is that God wants to make you stand, you're just not paying attention, right? Stand, withstand, stand, stand. It is the will of the Lord to make us stand against this foe, no matter how fierce he is. The word stand in this context, I think, means to stand and keep on standing. It's not just like the idea is, I want you to stand there. It means I want you to stand and hold ground. I want you to stake a claim and hold on to that claim. And that is what the Lord means for us to do. It is the will of the Lord for every believer to stand in Christ against any foe for the glory of His name. Our enemy is strong, that's true. But our God is much stronger. And by His will, we will stand. Amen? By His will, we will know what it means to taste victory. We will know that. By His will, we will be more than conquerors through Him who loves us to the glory of His name. To which I say, Hallelujah and Amen. This brings me to the main idea of Ephesians six ten through 20 and how I pray that we will hear this idea well. Because if I read this text right, our very life in battle depends on whether or not we get this point. I really think it's that serious. If we will hear this well and listen to it and obey it, we will stand in the day of evil. But if we choose to ignore this and don't listen well and just go off and try to live this life in the way that makes sense to us, ignoring the instruction of the Lord, you better beware. You better watch out. Because that enemy is a lot fiercer than you think he is and he just might strike you down. And so, since the stakes are so high, may the Lord right now give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see. The main idea of Ephesians 6.20 is that in order to stand against the devil and his schemes, we must be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might by putting on the whole armor of God, which is to say truth and righteousness and salvation and faith and eagerness for the gospel and the word of God. In order to stand our ground as the Lord wills, in order to be victorious, in order to be more than conquerors, we must allow our Father to strengthen us with His power. And the way He does that is by outfitting us with the armor of God. Life and death depend on this. And by, by that I mean that heaven and hell depend on this. Please believe me, that's true. If you lose this war, hell is your destiny. And I don't want you to lose this war. So put on the armor of God. Be strengthened in the strength of His might because this deal is just that serious. Today, I want to, in light of all that, I want to talk about the power and the place of our Father. Next week, I'll talk a little bit about our enemy because of what Paul says in verse 12. And then I want to spend six weeks 
talking about how to put this armor on and how to use things like truth and salvation and righteousness in the heat of battle. So that will be coming. But for today, I just want us to lift our chins up and look at God, behold Him, behold the power of our God. I'm going to organize my sermon around those two words early in verse 10. Be strong. In Greek, they're one word. And so I have three things to say about that word, and the first of which will take probably 99% of the time that I'm going to give today. So here's the first thing I have to say. The word in English, words, to be strong, is actually written in the passive voice, which means that it ought to be translated be made strong or be strengthened. In other words, we're not being commanded to do this action. We're not being commanded to strengthen ourselves as though we had any hope of making ourselves strong for this battle. We are being called to put ourselves in a place every day of our lives where we can be outfitted, where we can be made strong, where we can be strengthened by the Lord and by the power of His might. And Paul commands us to do this in two ways that are distinct but interrelated with each other. The first way is expressed by those words, in the Lord, in the Lord. In Paul, the word Lord almost always refers to Jesus Christ. And so I take this little phrase, in the Lord, to mean be made strong by what Christ has accomplished for you. Be made strong by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by hoping in Jesus, by looking to Jesus to meet all of our needs, to outfit us, to cause us to be victorious in war. And the point here is that our personal access to the power of God that will cause us to stand comes through Christ and through Christ alone. There is no other way that you will stand in this battle except in Christ. This connection between us and Christ is probably one of the main themes of Ephesians. Right around 30 times in the book of Ephesians, you'll see phrases like, in the Lord, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved, over and over and over and over again. And if you'll start, maybe this afternoon you could read the whole book of Ephesians. It'll just take you about 30 minutes. And pay attention to every time you see phrases like that. In Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, in the Lord. And if you'll do that, by the time you get to chapter 6, verse 10, you'll get it. You'll get what Paul is trying to say. And here's what he's trying to say. If you want to stand against the schemes of the devil, you must be connected to Christ. There is no other way to stand. There is no other hope for you at all. If we are not connected to Christ, friends, we have no hope in this battle. But if we are connected to Christ, our enemy has no hope for victory in this battle. Oh, how I pray in Jesus' name that you heard what I just said. If you are not connected to Christ, you have no hope in this battle. But if you are connected to God in Jesus Christ, your enemy has no hope in this battle. Glory be to His name. Because, beloved, the truth of the matter here is that we're not trying to win this war. Jesus Christ has already decisively won the war. Through His life, through His burial, through His, his death and burial, through His resurrection, through being ascended to the Father where He sits on high even right now, through all those things, He has decisively won the war and it is over. You know what we're involved in now? We are involved in a mop-up operation. But the war is done. There are battles yet to be fought. But the outcome is secured. 
There is no doubt about that. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Andrew Lincoln wrote this, It is because this victory has already been won that believers are involved in the battle at all. They are in a decisively new situation in contrast to their previous condition, which was described in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, where there could be no battle or resistance because they were in total bondage to the enemy. So, the call to the readers to stand against the powers is also a reminder of their liberation from the tyranny of those powers. In other words... Just the fact that we're in battle shows that we've been freed from the enemy and we're battling on the side of Christ. This victory has already been won. And we fight as warriors who live in victory. We fight in Christ against an enemy who has already been defeated. And someday, for a certainty, he will be hauled into the court of God and he will answer for everything he's ever done, for every one of us he's ever tried to strike And he will be quarantined in hell forever and ever being punished for what he did. We live in that hope. We live in the hope that one day the presence of evil will be removed from us. And we will face temptation no more. We will face sin no more. We will not have to battle him down anymore. But we will be able to worship God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength forever and ever and ever and ever. Beloved, if we abide in Christ and He abides in us, our enemy has no hope of victory, at least not ultimately. He may win a battle here and there, right? We might fall. You might get tempted this very day, and you might sin and you might fall. But it's amazing how God even uses those things and turns them around against the enemy and for your good. How many times have you sinned and confessed your sin before the Lord and repented before Him and He's taken what you've done and turned it into a good. It's happened to me so many times because this is the power of our Father over the enemy. Our enemy is defeated. Bottom line and end of story. So, Christian warrior, be made strong in the Lord. Connect yourself to Christ. This is your hope in battle. Disconnected from Christ, you have no hope. Steve Flager said this morning, He said, I don't even want to go out to get the mail without clothing myself in Christ. I don't want to let myself be lulled into thinking that I can do this. I can handle this. I don't need God's protection to go get the mail. Well, maybe you do. How do you know what you're going to face when you go outside? How do you know? So be in the Lord. Stay connected to Christ. Do not wander away from Him. And you will know what victory in battle means. The second related way that Paul commands us to be strong in the Lord is expressed in these words, in the strength of His might. And again here, the idea is that by virtue of our connection to Christ, we have access to the immense power of God by which we can overcome in the day of battle. Now this phrase, the strength of His might, might seem repetitious to you. It may seem superfluous, strength and might. But there is a slight distinction between these two words in Greek, which means I don't think it is repetitious. The word for strength here denotes not just strength, but the strength that rules over enemies. It is a, it is a strength of authority over. And so what I think Paul is trying to communicate to us here is be made strong in the strength of the Lord, the kind of strength that has authority over your enemies. He means to highlight here that the enemies we fight against are in fact submitted to the God that we fight for. And they must do everything he says 
when he says it. Paul is commanding Christian warriors to be made strong in the sovereign or the ruling strength of God and therefore to have hope over their enemies. Now we see this ruling strength of God over evil all throughout the Bible, don't we? From Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I want to point us to several texts this morning. And as I said earlier, I just want us to lift our chins up and look at our commander and behold the power of our God and believe in him. So let's start with 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings 6, the king of Assyria learned that his army was constantly being outwitted by the Israelites because of revelations that the Lord was giving to Elisha the prophet. Now here's how this would go. The king of Assyria would plot against Israel. They'd plot to attack them at a certain time and at a certain place and in a certain way with a certain intensity. But unbeknownst to him, the Lord would take those plans and reveal them to the prophet Elisha in full detail. Then the prophet Elisha would go to the king of Israel and give him the enemy's playbook and say, here's what they're planning against you, which would allow the king of Israel to take countermeasures and always outwit the king of Assyria or of Syria. So the king, as you can imagine, begins thinking, uh-oh, I got a traitor. There's somebody on the inside who's leaking information to the king of Israel. But one of his closest confidants said, sir, no, that's not what's happening. The problem is there's this prophet, Elisha, and he's a pain in the neck. Somehow he's finding out about all of our battle plans through the Lord. and We've got to stop him. And so the king of Syria commanded his armies to be dispatched to a city called Dothan, where Elisha was. And they surrounded the city with chariots and with horses. And they meant to capture and kill him, probably to cut his head right off. But here's how the story goes in verses 15 through 18. When the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you just got to know, the servant's thinking to himself, Excuse me? I mean, they're totally surrounded. And he's like, What do you mean? Where are these people? Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young men and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he, the Lord, struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And then I just love what happens next. They they approach Elisha. They're all blind. They're confused because they don't know why. All of a sudden they can't see. And he says to them, hey, you've come to the wrong city. Let me lead you to the right city. Here, come follow me. We'll get you there. And they somehow escort the Syrian army over to Samaria, which is an Israelite stronghold. And the army of Assyria is there now surrounded completely by the armies of Israel. And Elisha prays and says, oh Lord, please now open their eyes. And the Lord answers the prayer. Their eyes are open and they look and see that they're totally surrounded by the armies of Israel. And their history, their history. But instead of commanding the Israelites to destroy the Syrians, Elisha says, no, do this. Throw them a feast. Feed them really well and then send them back to their master, which is exactly what they did. And then the story just ends like this in verse 23. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. 
they learn their lesson. You cannot outwit the Lord. Beloved, our Father and His forces far outstrip our enemy and His forces in terms of numbers, in terms of power, in terms of weapons, in terms of tactics, in terms of you name it. The issue is not that. The issue is that often we don't have the eyes to see reality as it is, right? Sometimes we feel totally surrounded and in a desperate situation like we will die and there's no hope, there's no way to get out. But the truth is that the forces for you far outweigh the forces against you if you are in the Lord. That is reality. Behold the power of your God and believe. In the book of Job, I'm sure you remember well. We're not going to read any verses there, but you remember the first couple of chapters. When Satan wanted to attack this man of God and his family, remember what he had to do. Who did he have to get permission from? He had to get permission from the Lord, right? He did not have the authority to come directly against a man of God and his family without going through the Lord. Now, you may not like the fact or understand the fact that God, in fact, granted Satan permission. You could ask the question, Lord, why would you do that? Why would you allow the enemy to strike someone who is in you and so faithful to you? And I'll let the Lord answer for himself to you about that. But just remember this. God is much, much, much wiser than we are. He has a perspective that we do not have. He has a goodness that we do not have. He has a holiness that we do not have. He has purposes that we do not understand. And he has vowed to us to work all things, even evil things, to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Maybe one way the Lord means to show His power over evil is to be able to take evil and turn it into great good. I could take good and turn it into good, but God can take evil and turn it into good. So maybe that's His wisdom. I don't know, but I trust Him. And what I know for sure and what I learn from this text is that Satan has no power to strike unless he goes through God. That means our Father is ultimately power, powerful over the enemy who is coming against us. Behold the power of your God and believe. In Zechariah chapter 3, and you can turn to this one. We're going to read a few verses here. Satan came against a man named Joshua, the high priest. And he came to accuse him before the Lord, but the Lord rebuked him with a word and in an instant derailed all of his plans. Here's how the text reads in verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And please make no mistake about this. When it says that Satan wants to accuse, that means he wants to destroy that person before God. He wants to level an accusation against the person that God will believe and then strike the person in relation to that accusation. So what the devil's trying to do here is destroy Joshua the high priest. And and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. In other words, you know how I read that? In part, probably what Satan was saying against Joshua the high priest, there was probably some truth to it. He was probably accusing Joshua of some things that Joshua was actually guilty of. And when he accuses you before the Father, there is probably some truth to what he's saying. 
He is the father of lies, but he's very devious in how he lies, isn't he? He likes to take a truth and twist it. And so here, he, I think these filthy garments are signifying the fact that there was some truth to what Satan was saying. But the Lord said in return, Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, in verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then you can read in the rest of that chapter what happened to Joshua. It's really an amazing thing. But the thing that I want us to see right now is that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, God turned what Satan meant for evil into a great good for Joshua. Even though there were real sins in his life that he could have been accused of, God wiped it away, forgave him, and clothed him in righteousness because this is our God. He has total power over the devil. The devil is completely unable to execute his will unless the Father allows him. And that's what I want us to see. Behold the power of your God who can take even sin and turn it into a great good for the glory of His name. Now let's go to the New Testament, Luke 4. In verses 1-14, to we read of the time in the life of Jesus when the devil, the devil came against Him with great strength. And I'm assuming that the reason He came against Him so strong in those early days is because if He could have defeated Jesus right then in the desert, the whole thing would have been over. This whole mission of salvation for the nations would have been over. Satan would have won and Jesus would have been defeated. And so He came against Him in very, very strong and unmistakable terms. But what happened? Every time the devil tried to tempt Jesus, all Jesus had to do was turn around and rightly interpret a Scripture back to Him and the battle was done. It was over. You notice in Luke 4 and the other account of this in Matthew, there's not a lot of going back and forth about the same temptation. The devil gave a temptation. Jesus confronted it with truth and it was over just like that. And what was the ultimate result of this time of temptation in the life of Jesus? Look down at verse 13 with me. Luke writes, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went through all the surrounding country. So please get this picture in your mind. The devil went after Jesus in the desert with one intention, and that was to destroy Him. He went there to steal, to kill, to destroy, to devour. But what happened? What actually happened? What happened was that the Lord used His own schemes against Him. And when He went back into the cities, He went back filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fame of Jesus spread throughout that whole country. And if I read this well, He wasn't the one doing the spreading. Somehow, news about Jesus got out and it was just spreading like wildfire. And so, even though the devil meant to cut the message off before it began, the exact opposite effect happened. And the reason is, God is absolutely powerful over him. He is absolutely sovereign over him. Behold the power of your God and believe. Believe in Him. Look to Him and believe in Him. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. We read of a time when Jesus came across two demon-possessed men who were making life very difficult for their city and making it, frankly, very frightening for people in that whole region. 
But as soon as the demons saw Jesus coming down the road, what did they do? What did they say? Well, look at verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? And I don't read that with a tone of accusation like, what do you have to do with us, Son of God? I don't think that was the tone. I think it was a tone of absolute terror. What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Because look at what they say next. Have you come here to torment us before the time? And they're shaking. The trembling in their boots is what they're doing. And then they begged Jesus to do what? They said, please, please don't do that. Cast us into these pigs over here. And Jesus, for whatever reasons are only known to Him, granted them their request. And they went into the herd of pigs and off into the lake they went where all the pigs were killed and destroyed. Now the point I'm trying to point to here in this text is to say that the demons see Jesus. They know Jesus. And as James said in chapter 2, verse 19, they shudder at Him. The demons tremble at Jesus Christ. And when He commands, they must obey. Do you notice there's no debating going on in this story? When He said, come out and go into the pigs, there was no debate. There was no argumentation. There was no hesitation. He spoke. They did. That's how it works. Behold the power of your commander. He has absolute authority over your enemy. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus said this to Peter, who's also called Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now I take us to this text because I wanted us to see here that Satan was not only requesting to destroy Peter, he was slamming down his foot and demanding to destroy him. He wanted to sift him like wheat. You know what that means? It means he wanted to utterly crush him. He wanted to devour him. But what did Jesus have to do to overcome that? All he had to do was pray and say, Father, please don't let this happen. Instead, strengthen Peter's faith. And then with absolute calmness of assurance, Jesus simply said, Peter, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. He didn't say, if you turn back. He didn't say, if you make it through this battle, then please do what I've asked you to do. He didn't say that. He said with calm, prophetic passion, Peter, when you turn again, do what I've asked you to do and go and strengthen your brothers. And you know the story. Peter did fall into temptation. And he came pretty close to being sifted like wheat. But by the grace and power of God in Jesus that would not allow the devil to complete his plans for Peter, Peter turned back and he became one of the most powerful forces in the early church for the spread of the gospel around the world. Behold the power of your God. Friends, even when he gives Satan permission to strike you in measure, he uses it against him and for you. Believe in him. Behold his power. Acts chapter 19. We read of some Jews who were trying to use the name of Jesus Christ to gain power over demons. But if you remember this story, things didn't go so well for them because they were not, in fact, in Christ. They were trying to use Christ as a tool, but they did not know Him. So here's how the story goes in Acts 19, 13-20. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists... Wouldn't you just like to know, what did that mean? Did they have a job called an itinerant Jewish exorcist? I don't know what that means. But they undertook 
to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on him, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. I love this story for at least three reasons. The first reason is the fact that I see in here that not only do the demons recognize Jesus, but they also recognize the true followers of Jesus. He said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the reason he said, who are you? Is because this person was not in Christ, you see? But when a demon comes across you, if you are truly in Christ, they know who you are. They recognize you. And I believe they tremble at you too. Not because of who you are, but because of the fact that you are clothed in Christ. And they have eyes to see it. And they tremble at Him. Never forget that. Second reason I love this story is because it shows that Jesus Christ is not to be played with. He is not to be taken lightly. He is not like a magic charm where you can take the name Jesus Christ and assume that you'll be delivered from all of your enemies. If you hate Him, if you're rebelling against Him, if you refuse to follow Him, don't think that you can just use His name when it's convenient for you to get what you want. If you come across this Satan and these demons and and you try to use the name of Christ, but you are not in Christ, you better beware. You better beware because the enemy is more powerful than you think he is. Number three, I love this story. Because it shows that even when people do that, when they try to misappropriate the name of Jesus Christ, when they use it falsely and wrongly, and when the devil is allowed to attack them for it, God still turns that into good. He takes what the enemy means for harm and He uses it for good. At this church, we're really concerned about right teaching, aren't we? And we're really concerned about heresy in the world. Well, I want you to know, our God is powerful. And He can even use a heretic to glorify His name. Now, this turning doesn't always happen as fast as it did in Ephesus. I'm amazed at this story. This whole thing happened at somebody's house. Next thing you know, word spreads throughout all the city. And what is the result? Not fear of the devil, but fear of God. And everybody, even believers, begin confessing their sins and repenting. This is our, the power of our God. He doesn't always turn things that fast, but He always turns what the devil means for harm into good for His name. Believe it. It will always happen. Behold the power of your God and believe, Christian. In 1 Peter chapter 5, just after Peter warns us about the devil telling us that he's like a prowling and a roaring lion who seeks to devour us. He then strengthens us with these words in verses 9 to 11. Resist him, firm in your faith. In other words, firm in believing in Jesus Christ. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering 
are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will, now that's a promise, He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now I'm just telling you as a as a believer in Christ, as a warrior in His army, got a few bruises and scars on my body from the years of battle, I look at that text and I take such great joy in it because I know what that means. That means that no matter how often I've lost a battle here and there, in the end, God is going to affirm, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. He is not going to allow the designs of the devil to wreak havoc in my life. Ultimately, I may fall today, but tomorrow I will rise in Christ. And forever and ever, God will take of His great power, defeat my enemy, and cause me to stand. Behold the power and the grace and the mercy of your God. Finally, in the book of Revelation, we see a book that's filled with displays of the power of God over the enemy. In fact, early on in my Christianity, I met a guy who was in, uh, where was he? He was in that Navy SEAL school down in Camp Pendleton, Southern California. And he was an expert in decoding things. And so he took the book of Revelation and decoded it, if you will. There's a sentence early on in the book where John says, I have signed these things to you. In other words, I've put these things in a, in a code for you. And so just as a decoder, he read the book of Revelation and he decoded it and he said, God beats Satan. He said, God has power over Satan. This is the meaning of Revelation. You've got to receive that from the eyes of people and the ears of people in that day who were being persecuted. In their churches, if they were to stand up and give prayer requests, it would have been, please pray for my family. My brother was just fed to the lions. Please pray for my family. My husband was just burned in tar. Please pray for my family. My son and daughter were just captured and put in jail. We have no idea where they are. Please pray for our family. They just confiscated all of our stuff and cut off our electricity and left us without anything. This is the reality that they were living in. And here comes a letter that says, God has power over Satan. God defeats Satan. So believe. Behold the power of your God and believe in Him. That's the point of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 20, we see the final decisive move of victory of God over Satan where God is shown to throw Satan, death, Hades, and all the forces of evil into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur where they will remain forever by the sheer will and power of God. You see, when Satan is cast into hell, he won't want to stay there, would you? He won't, and he's much stronger than you are. But no matter how strong he is, he will not be able to overcome the fierce will of God against him. He will be held there forever. So decisive is this victory. Check me on this. The last two chapters of Revelation mention absolutely nothing about the enemy. They mention nothing about the devil. They move on from him to show what it will be like for those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They paint a picture of what heaven will be like and they culminate in these words. Revelation 22, 3-6 is what I'll be reading. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, that is the city, and His servants will worship Him. 
They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants, that's us, what must soon take place. For reasons only known to God, He has allowed evil to wreak havoc upon the earth for a season. But beloved, what I'm trying to point you to is that there will come a time where God will simply speak the word and everything will come to its appointed consummation and our enemies will be decisively quarantined from all of God's heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. All it will take on the part of the Lord is a word. That's it. Behold the power, the mercy, the greatness of your God and believe in Him. There is no other lesson, warrior, that's more important for you in the heat of battle than to learn the lesson to look to your commander, look to your God, believe in Him, trust in His strength. He's much stronger than you think He is. It is clear from the Bible that our Supreme Commander has total control over our enemies. And so, if we will simply be made strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, we will have total assurance of victory. We may lose a battle here and there, but at the end of the day, we're going to win this war. Now, very quickly, just about two or three more minutes, I want to say two more things about this word, to be made strong. First, be made strong appears in the Greek and in the English as a command, which means that Paul is not suggesting to us believers that we be made strong. He's insisting on it. He is insisting that we not take these things lightly. He's insisting that we prepare ourselves for battle with the means that God Himself has appointed for the battle. This is not a decision we get to make. If you're following Christ, if you consider God in Christ your Father, you're, you're not being called into a debate here. You're being given a command. Be made strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So when you walk out that door, it will be a sin for you to forget what you've heard today in church. When you walk out that door, there is a command coming upon you to listen to your Father, let Him outfit you, and be made strong for war. So just walk in obedience is all I'm saying. Finally, number three, the word for be made strong is in the present tense, which indicates that it's not a once-for-all thing you do. When you were saved, it's not like Paul said, the day you were saved, be made strong then and then you're done. What he's saying is every single day of your life, put yourself in a place where the Lord can make you strong. It's like manna. What, how did manna work for the Israelites? They could gather manna today and it would work for today. But what would happen if they tried to keep the manna till the next day? What would happen? It would rot, right? It would mold. It wouldn't work. And I think the same dynamic is true here. The strength that I have found in Christ today, I've been up since 5 o'clock this morning seeking His strength and His power and His wisdom and His love. All of that's great and it won't last till tomorrow. I need to get up tomorrow again and seek Him and love Him and be found in Him and be clothed in Him every single day, day after day after day after day after day. Be made strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This is a way of life for the believer. This is not a once-for-all kind of a thing. Beloved, your enemy is strong, that's for sure, but your Father is infinitely stronger. And so if you will simply be made strong in His power by the strength of His might, 
you will be assured victory. Let's pray. Our God, I love you for your word. I love you for the clarity that you give us about the enemy and much more so about your own self. And I love you for commanding us to do things, Father, that are really good for us. I envision this command like a father saying to his child, be prepared for your life when you go out into the world. The father's not trying to weigh down his child. He's trying to prepare him for the battles that he knows that he will face. And so you as a father are trying to outfit us for things that you see that we don't see. And how I pray that you would cause each of us as loving children, as trusting children who don't question you but just love you and do what you ask us to do. How I pray in Jesus' name you would give us the spirit to be made strong in you every day of our lives, to put you before and above and beneath and behind and beside and in everything. Father, please don't let us put other things ahead of you or before you or beside you or anywhere. Please, God, be the priority of our lives. Please clothe us with power from on high. We don't have power in ourselves to fight this battle. But in you, we have victory, and victory that's sure. So please come near and help us now. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.